I mean, I went to Afghanistan four times oh, in God. the SAS. So I got a lot of time doing what I'd always wanted to do, which was go and lead troops yep. in combat. That was it. I was going to pack up my life in the military. I was going to fly to Philadelphia and do two years full-time MBA. Like, leave your uniform behind. You're not, you're not God anymore. You're not the most respected fighters in your field yeah. that everyone listens to. You're going to the bottom of the stack <laughs> and you're a, you're a rookie. And I think if you just keep taking some measured risks. Mm, but then open mind. Not, yeah, and not – it's okay to pause for a while, but – Always think of something else you want to do that you're excited by mm. and just go do it. Yeah. If you find yourself going through hell, keep going. I love that one. Yeah. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Holloway, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. This week's guest was on the very first list of potential guests that I ever made for the podcast. And while our crazy schedules full of travel and adventure mean it's taken us a little while to coordinate, I'm so excited to have Mark Wales on the show today and his beautiful fiance Samantha Gash to follow next week. You might already know that Samantha is one of my dearest friends and soon-to-be bridesmaid, and that Sam, Mark, and their Bubba Harry are pretty much family. And yet, somehow, even after hearing both of their stories many times, I am still completely blown away by these powerhouses every single time, and count myself so lucky to have them as friends. They are truly just another breed of human being, and their stories add something very different to the yay we've seen so far. Starting off with Mark, you may know I'm almost as obsessed with the military as I am with crime. You can't help what makes you yay after all. And Mark was not just in the army, but an SAS platoon commander in special ops. So cool. Having his eyes on the prize from year nine, when he first heard about the SAS, he made his way through the gruelling training to join the SAS and ultimately complete tours in East Timor, Afghanistan, Lebanon and more. Impressive enough as that is alone, his stellar career in the military was just one of many chapters on Mark's way to Yay, who, after coming back to the academy to teach, then retired and headed to New York. And not just for a gap year or gardening leave, oh no, he went to do an MBA at Wharton and become a management consultant at leading international firm McKinsey. If you thought that was enough, you don't know Mark and Sam. I can't really imagine Mark in an office environment, especially after being in combat. And it turns out he felt much the same, so tried out for Survivor Season 2 back in Australia. On the show, he met our beautiful Sammy, and the two now have the most beautiful little boy, Harry, who absolutely lights up all our lives. On top of that, Mark also started his own business called Kill Capture, designing luxury streetwear to help the ex-military transition back into their lives with armour for their day. And quite understandably, he is now a coveted public speaker, sharing his wisdom and knowledge from his amazing experiences along the way. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did, and excuse my gushing over all the details, I totally nerd out on this stuff. We've just set Mark up in a rocking chair because <laughs> he's a very times. large man and, <laughs> and his legs didn't fit on the first chair. All right. 
Thank you so much for having me in your beautiful home in the hills. No, thanks for coming. We are sitting in front of the fire in a rocking chair. <laughs> it's so cosy. It's so delightful. Yep. <laughs> what a, a setting. Wish I had a whiskey and a shotgun. We, we've got a Negroni. We've got some gin. Yeah. You can crack it out. Yeah, well, I'd definitely do that. <laughs> it's winter, guys. You know, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. <laughs> we want the content. Yeah. <laughs> so... The very first section, as you probably know, is called WayTA, and you have one of the coolest journeys that I've ever heard covering some pretty amazing things. I mean, I will have pre-recorded a bio, and I think by now everyone will already be cool. like, this human, what the actual. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> but before we get into the meaty stuff, can you take us back to the very beginning? So young Mark, at the very beginning, who you thought you'd be if you thought you'd end up in the military... You know, you were a Perth boy. Were you out on the beaches? What were you like? It's funny. I had to recount this kind of my, I guess, my life story from start to finish when I was doing, I think I've only done it twice. Once was it auditioning for Survivor. (gasps) And they said, you know, tell us everything. And I kind of laid it out. And when I was finished, (laughs) she was like, oh, my God. And I said, I've never really had to lay out the whole path like that. But when when I did, it looked like it had been quite a busy journey. But, um... To start with, I was born in Newman, which is a mining town, ah. right up north in WA. There was nothing there. It was like a service station. It was 50 degrees every day and no, no real air conditioning. My parents both worked in the iron ore mine that wow. was up there. So I, I was born there, grew up in the red dirt and um, <laughs> had two brothers. And then I left there when I was about two. My dad got a job in customs. We moved to Perth. So I spent most of my childhood in Perth, south of the river in a, in a suburb there and Basically, I rode my bike around, fired slingshots, played in the park, walked my dog. I had a pretty good upbringing. I was lucky. I had two brothers that were both tradies. So they'd, as kids, they'd make go-karts and make me be the crash test dummy. And um, <laughs> Yeah, we had, a good, we had a good time. I was lucky. And for me, I think my journey to the military started when I was in grade nine. I was sitting there in class. And this kid, he was, a, he was a military buff, right? He used to be a cadet and he used to have the uniform and all that. He bought this magazine into class and it had military history, right? But the lead story on it was the SAS raid on the Iranian embassy in London in 1980. It was this famous raid where in, on live TV, they had to go and storm this embassy and rescue about 20 hostages. And the building was on fire and they had gas masks and submachine guns and they had to rope down the side and it was all like fraught and peril and danger and these... Everyone had been watching this for six days and Margaret Thatcher signed off the order to send the SAS in. And no one had really seen or heard of the SAS for a long time because originally they were soldiers in World War II that would go deep behind enemy lines in North Africa and they'd raid German airfields. So they were like this feared unit, but they'd been secret for a long time. And when I was looking through the photos and this guy was explaining to me, I'm like, that's what I want to do. I want to join a unit that does something like that, something really dangerous, rescues people. Because it sounds so exciting when you look at it like that. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. I've been yeah. so excited for this episode. of like, Mark Wales, <laughs> SAS commander. Tell us about it. And um, <laughs> that's when I thought, I said, how do you get in? He goes, you can actually go through the army because I thought you could join out of high school. Or yeah, just straight in. Just <laughs> straight into commander. Work experience in you go. And then, <laughs> but he said, you've got to go through the army. That's the British SAS, but there's an Aussie one. Mm-hmm. And when I found out, I went straight to the library, got all the books out on the SAS. It was like two books. This is pre, <laughs> this is just after Gulf War One. So 
around this time. This is like early 90s. This is like 93. Yeah. Yeah. So Bravo 2-0 came out, which is a pretty famous book about a patrol in the first Gulf War that got captured. And it was really rare for anyone from the unit to release books like that because it's such a secretive unit. Yeah, of course. So when I got this book, I read it about three times in the backyard in summer. And um, I just went, that's what I'm going to do. Oh so I started gosh. like mapping out the path. I said, I've got to get into the army. I've got to go through Defence Academy, get trained as an officer, go through an infantry unit, do selection. Well, it was going to be a long journey, yeah. but I got started. And when I eventually got into the Defence Academy, that was a long shot. I didn't realise it was like hard to get into. It was a lot of kids from private school. Oh, you know, they all, they all thought they were pretty good. Actually, Adfa <laughs> was a good place, but... I don't have a lot of good memories of it because this was when I went there. This is the period when there was still a lot of bastardization. Okay. Women were treated yeah. terribly. They were probably 10 or 20% of the population at Adfa. It was like a boarding school run by kids. Mm. <laughs> and like it didn't take long. The culture was still there. And, and before you knew it, you know, it's been the paper for all the wrong reasons. So I think it's a great place. But in that day and age, I don't think it was mm. the institution that it should have been. So I trained there with a bunch of people that are still my friends and I was impatient because all this was a prelude to the main event and that was SAS. It was like, I'm either getting in or I'm leaving the military. This is so interesting. Yeah, I was lucky that I found my kind of goal when I was so young. How old were you when Uh, this guy came to speak to you? So I think when I I was in grade nine, so I was only like (gasps) 13 maybe. Wow. I was pretty young. And so I went through all the training and I tried to do all the things that would help me get better as a soldier. So I went to an infantry unit, which is pretty, it's difficult to, you got to lead troops on the ground, ground combat. So it's quite hard. Okay, wait, hold on. So go back to the beginning because assume that people listening have no military understanding. Yeah, I've kind of jumped forward a bit. (laughs) Because, okay, I soak this shit up. I am so, I mean, you know this, I am obsessed with war and (laughs) and like military operations and all that stuff is so fascinating to me. But people who haven't heard of it before, like how do you, you know, firstly, ADFA, like what does it even stand for? It's the Australian Defence Force Academy. Yeah, it's funny. I haven't really gone into that. So, Like how do you get in and then so you graduate, you found out in year nine but then you graduated school and then had to get into the ADF in, in 97 yep. and you had to choose a course. So is that kind of like uni? Yeah, it is. So when I was when I found out I wanted to go in the military, the next year in grade 10 I started going to the recruiters and saying, how do I do this? Wow. And the first recruiter I spoke to was this Navy guy in Northbridge in Perth. And I said, oh, I want to go and join the army. My parents go like, oh, what about the Navy and the Air Force? I said, don't be silly. I said, it's <laughs> no, army. No, 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 no. No, I'm like, it's <laughs> army. So I told them I wanted to join the army, but also told them, because I was too honest, I told them I had flat feet. And the Navy <laughs> guy down there, traditionally in World War II and that, they wouldn't take people with flat feet because they have lower limb issues. Really? And, yeah. And when I told the Navy guy, he goes, you're not going to be able to join with that condition. So... <gasps> He goes, I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to join the military with that condition. And you're like, that, and I remember, my life's I remember over. going home and going to footy training and just being like, that's just ruined my entire life. <laughs> and I sat on it for maybe six months and I remember thinking, no, I'm just going to try it anyway. Mm-hmm. And I didn't tell him. I went back, I didn't tell him. And I found another recruiter that was an army guy and I explained to him what I wanted to do. And he goes, well, let's try and get you through the Defence Academy. It's called ADFA, the Australian Defence Force Academy. It's where we train our officers you get to do it. it's in Canberra. You get to do an undergraduate degree for three years, mm-hmm. 
And he goes, if you pass that, you then go to the Royal Military College. That's Duntroon? Yes, just over the hill. And that is like a true old school Sandhurst style military academy where all they do is train army officers. Whereas ADFA has Air Force, Navy, Army, all training the same college but you you get into one of the three or are you general and then you specialize later you you accept entry into one of the services okay so army navy or air force and you go to classes in your uniform and you're like you get trained and i was 16 when i was accepted and when i packed my bags and flew to canberra i was just 17 oh my god so i was only a kid oh you were so little yep. had you finished school did you finish finish year 12 yeah yep. okay you had to get a good score I think they took maybe 10 or 15% applicants. So I was lucky to get in. Wow. And it was my first like good luck step of yeah. like working hard and getting <laughs> getting into the academy. And when I got there, I just worked hard at all my classes, studied hard, played a bit of footy. Mm-hmm. Um, I hated being away from WA, which is warm, good beaches. <laughs> Canberra stuck is not in warm. Canberra. It's like, <laughs> man. To this day, and I shouldn't to any Canberrans that are listening, it's probably my most hated city in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't stand it. Just because it's so freaking cold and I, I like a bit of warm weather. It would but, have been abrupt for you as well. Like oh, it wasn't it was gradual. <laughs> no, it, was a, it was like getting plunged into cold water. Um, but I was in the military and that was the start of the, of the journey. Wow. Yeah. And that was, I would try and find people from the SAS, but they were like, it was rare as hen's teeth. You couldn't actually find anyone from the unit that was willing to talk about what they did. So it took me years to try and get in that position where I could actually find a few. I love that you were fascinated with it from the very from beginning. It's the, the only reason I joined. Only reason I joined, yeah. And I love that it was all or nothing as well because I think sometimes having that all or nothing attitude is what drives you because you've got no choice. Yeah. You're like, I am doing this or I'm not doing anything. Yeah. I love that you knew from the beginning because most people don't. And it's yeah. cool to know that sometimes you do have it mapped out from a decade before and you and you, you make it happen yeah. and it turns out exactly how you want it to. And it's funny because the, the obstacles that people talk about – are always there. So mm-hmm. many people said to me, they were dismissive. They kind of waved their hand. They're like, you don't, you don't realize what it people takes. People that get in aren't like you. They're different. <gasps> it was like, it was never stated explicitly, yeah, but it yeah. was implicitly stated. Yeah. Like, you're too big. You won't have the endurance. <laughs> they're all endurance guys. They're, Mark is very large, guys. Right. I'm, a, I'm a heavy person, right? I got a, West Australian were all big. As a kid, even, I was bigger yeah. than the average size. And people would always say, they go, you won't have the endurance. You won't have the. It must have been fifteen or twenty times people no said that way. to me. Yeah, and I just like each did that time, fuel the fire? Kind of. I just didn't listen to them because I knew they weren't informed. Yes. Okay. And also, I thought if you can work hard to offset that weakness, you can actually get across the yeah. line. So in that three years, you were studying history and political science, yeah. and you'd go to classes like you would normally at uni, but in your uniforms. And then, how did you? In that three years, how does your military training sit alongside? Yes. So you, you know. do a normal academic semester like most unis do. Yep. And there's a bit of military training interspersed in there. So you do a few periods of it each week. So there'd be like physical training, mm-hmm. drill. And then when the uni breaks came, you do two weeks in the bush learning army oh. stuff with all your mates. <laughs> Just um, learning army, army stuff. stuff. <laughs> yep. All the Air Force people go off and... Learn Air Force stuff. Yeah, sit in cafes and... <laughs> Like, um, is there that Top Gun and like, is there that like rivalry between oh, the three yeah, of you? Like there's rivalry. It's, <laughs> it's always funny. Um, and is it as brutal as it sounds? Like, are you really broken down to kind of oh, see how far you can push? How they yeah, can push you? I think at the start, 
it's psychologically it's a real shock because you've never seen anything like the discipline that people impose on you mm. and you there are they're getting you to change your values and yeah to get someone to do that is a big step because you've got these values that have been baked into you since you were a baby basically and the army's taking you and saying we're going to break you down to nothing <gasps> and when we rebuild you you're going to look like us you're going to act like us and you're going to have the same values that we have and they do it better than anyone in the world and it yeah. actually works and it's i think some of the old techniques were very rough mm. and i think we've gotten a lot better at it but um it actually works that's crazy mm. yep Oh my gosh. Okay, so then you did get into the Royal Military College at Duntroon yep. Yep. in 2000, which is yep. amazing. Oh my gosh, you must have just been so over the moon. Yeah, at it, was that cool. point. it was cool. <laughs> One step closer. Yeah. So talk us through officer training. Like, yeah, what does so that actually involve? People were a bit afraid of going from ADFA to Duntroon because mm-hmm. it was, ADFA was like the kind of boarding school setup. It was mm-hmm. still hard, but it was very mixed. When you got to Duntroon, it was like died in the wool army training. And there was this, everyone knew that you would carry the weapons that you carry in the military. The instructors there were very tough. The cohort was much like a uh, higher older. Caliber. It was a higher caliber. The yeah. expectations were high. So it was a much bigger step up in terms of your training. So a lot of people were afraid of it. And the physical training was really tough as well. When you weren't doing that, you were up all night planning for exercises and using your brain. Like there's a lot of planning that goes into military stuff. So I was excited to go there for me, it was another step towards the SAS. But I joined a Kokoda company, which is, they break us down to companies named after Australian battles. Um, and I was with all my mates, all the guys that I loved, all the guys and girls that I played sport with and we're all there and you live with each other 24-7. So it was, it was amazing fun. Would have been really collegiate, I imagine. It, it was. It was hilarious. <laughs> it was hilarious, yeah. You did everything together. You went out and drank and we carried on. It was it was fun. Yeah, so tell us about the actual training and learning how to use weapons. And like you literally have gone from being this country WA kid mm. with dreams of the military to actually learning how to operate machinery and actually, you know, waking up to plan missions yeah. in the middle of the night. Like how does – firstly, what it does it feel as surreal to you at the time as it sounds now thinking about it? And secondly, what – is that training actually like? Mm. I mean, I'm sure some of it's secret. Yeah. But what, you know, do you get like woken up with water being thrown on you at 3 a.m.? Like I would imagine you do and then you're like thrown in the deep end and, ha- you know. Yeah, it's not it's not secret. It's routine stuff, but it's hard because it's very demanding. And the interesting part is like you, you learn weapons, so you learn to throw grenades and handle rifles and all that. <laughs> and that's fun and exciting, but the really interesting part comes when they try, when they try to teach you how to lead troops in the field because that's if you can't do that you don't graduate so they'll show you like this is how you get a platoon because you graduate as a platoon commander which is 30 people yeah it's three teams of nine basically you have to control and move that in in battle so they say right if if we're going to do an attack this is how you organize your troops on the ground to lead an attack and not get everyone killed like it's world war one like we're going to show you how to maneuver and use fire and use the terrain to your advantage so you don't lose any of your troops, but you also achieve the, the mission. So they show you how to do it. It's actually really intimidating when you're in charge of that because it's like yeah. it's a lot to think about. You're not just thinking about your rifle. You're trying to navigate. You're trying to put people in position. And, and we're only 20 years old. 20, oh. I was 20 when I, when I started. So I had my 21st birthday at, at Duntroon. Oh so you're a little <laughs> child soldier. It's a lot to take on. Yeah. But the when you leave the, the um, Duntroon, you're going to be doing this with 
real troops that are mm. older than you, that are more experienced than you. So you got to you got to learn it, and mm. they're good at training you hard and putting you under pressure to to do that. Because mm. you're better off getting it wrong in training than yeah. going out in the field and getting you know getting people killed. Well, that's what I always wonder is because you do go from like a simulated training environment and then straight into the field, there's kind of no middle ground between that. Yeah. It would be so hard to simulate those conditions for yep. you to actually prepare you in any way for yep. going outside of Australia, you know? Yep. And I, it was funny, I finished my career at Duntroon as the lead instructor at first class. And for me, it was the best way to finish my career because I was able to then give back everything I'd learned mm. in combat and all those small lessons I was able to do that with with young people that we wanted to learn. So it was a great way to finish my career, you know, wow. 10 years after this. Oh, my gosh. So yeah. let's talk about those 10 years. Yeah. And just quickly <laughs> as well so I understand, in terms of the terminology, when you graduate ADFA, what's your yep. title? And then when you become an officer or yep. a platoon commander – what are your how do people refer to yeah. you you know so you're called a, a, like a trainee so you're a trainee when you're at Duntra and Adva you call an officer cadet basically you're a, a basic cadet, okay. cadet yep and when you graduate from Duntroon you're given a commission which I understand is I, I think it's got some legal authority but it's basically granted by uh, the Queen mm-hmm. from what I understand correct me if I'm wrong someone who's listening but <laughs> I'm like no nah, I don't know <laughs> yeah someone will be like this is wrong yeah but you get a certain legal authority and become an officer in the military so you leave as a lieutenant okay so that's a rank a junior rank mm-hmm. and you're a platoon commander so the rank goes lieutenant captain major lieutenant colonel colonel brigadier generals oh my god that's above. the order that's the order yep. I never knew that and then in the so that's in the officer ranks and then you've got the enlisted ranks, I hate that, that term, but the actual guys that do the real hard work, mm. guys and girls, they have they start as a private, they get a lance corporal, corporal sergeant, warrant officer. Oh, so that's a different it's a like slightly ladder different, kind of. Yeah, slightly different. They have two kind of tiered systems, which I, I don't really agree with. Well, because then um, wouldn't you overlap because you'd, you'd be one and then you'd kind of swap to the other if well, you became you enlisted? Don't, when you join the military, you choose one or the other. Ah. Yeah. So Dunterin trains the... Lieutenant above, yep, and Kapuka and all the infantry training set, all the other training centers train the other ranks. Oh my god! So there's two so different confusing. systems. Yeah, and I don't think it's a very old way of doing things. I, yeah. st- I don't agree with it. I think it's I confusing. Think it's a new century, and we <laughs> should be doing it differently. Yeah. And so then when you so when you graduate an officer as an officer, you're not in the SAS. No. That's a completely different kind of yep. thing. So then how did you make your SAS dreams come true, which we know that you did? Yeah. How does that happen? So when you graduate from Duntroon, you have a choice about what specialty you go to. We call it a core, but it's really a specialty. So you can be in logistics, mm-hmm. you can be in intelligence, you can be in artillery, you can choose armor, you can fly aircraft in the army were you, you were special air services right uh yes but okay. i chose infantry oh so there's comp there's three combat corps there's infantry armor and artillery and they're considered the frontline fighting units they used to be male only they're now mixed yep. units um and i chose infantry because it's viewed as being one of the more difficult of the combat corps because you're basically foot mounted soldiers so you're the ones that close with and kill the enemy and capture these objectives. Mm. And inf- artillery do the same thing and armour technically do the same thing, but you work in concert yep. to do that. And I knew that SAS were they kind of foot soldiers, right? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to go with the infantry because I thought it would, it would closely replicate 
what I experienced in the SAS. And that's true. They draw quite heavily from infantry, but they, they do. They, you know, they get, one of my mates was a submarine engineer when I was in <laughs> SAS. So they, they recruit a whole bunch of people. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So the next over the next 10 years, you had a spectacular military career. And, I mean, it wasn't just in Australia either. You did tours in Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, East Timor, Solomon Islands. So right in the thick of huge global... Yep conflicts yeah. and did you when you you know joined the SAS did you have in mind that you would end up on tour like was that always the goal or was it just it just kind of happened you know it's it's funny that when I started looking at the military we'd been there'd been this long piece like think back to the early 90s there was only you know 30 or 40,000 websites on the internet digital wasn't really a thing the cold war had basically finished in 1989. There's only a few years later. We'd have mm. the Gulf War and a few other things. There'd been this long peace since Vietnam for Australia. We'd had a few peacekeeping missions, but there was nothing else. When I joined the military in 1997, there was still nothing. We'd had peacekeeping missions in, in Rwanda and Somalia recently. That was it. Mm. And that was small. Still busy, but they were small commitments. Mm. By the end of my time at ADFA, East Timor had started and Australia was heavily committed to the mission of protecting these Timorese from the violence that was happening there and helping them achieve their independence. So when I went through Duntroon, that was the big That was the big mission theme. at the moment. Yeah. So when I went to my infantry unit, which was called the second battalion, which is based in Townsville, it's like this proud unit. There's like first, second, third battalion and a few others. So many terms. There's so many terms. <laughs> right. So, so so much tradition there. It's and fascinating though. Yeah, it's it's cool. It's it's cool. And I've even forgotten a lot of it. But when I went to that unit, um, they had been in East Timor originally in 1999 to stop all the massacres that were happening. And then we were committing to go back at the end of 2000. So we were going back for another mission. Sorry, 2001. End of 2001, I was going to go back with my platoon to East Timor mm-hmm. for a seven-month rotation. That Sept- was your first overseas. That was my first ever tour. Yep. September 11 happened. Oh, my God, of course. On the cusp of this. And I remember being in East Timor and watching on CNN. They had the U- the US Jesus. forces had Bin Laden cornered at Tora Bora, and from that point on, basically from September 11 for the next decade, Australia and the, the key allies of so the US and Britain were heavily committed to the Middle East. To the Middle East. That's we, we lived in the Middle East for a long time. Oh my gosh, yeah. I didn't even think that your career really did cross the whole like... You couldn't have timed it any better. No, <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to go on tour in the Middle East, like... Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I have so many questions about this. And just guys, as we're going along, this is literally... Mark has done so much since the military. I'm just giving it so much airtime because <laughs> I know that it's not known to people outside the military. Like it's, no. it's something that we're not that aware of, but is fascinating. Mm. And I imagine that gave you a really good footing for what came next. So just in me for a little bit longer on this topic and then I promise we'll yeah, move on. No. What was it like? Like I, I can't, I, I don't even know how to form the questions, but how is being on tour actually like? Because we see so much of it in the movies. Often, yeah. of course, it's through an American lens, yeah. not so much an Australian infantry lens. But what's the culture shock like? What is yeah. the confronting I can't even imagine being on the ground somewhere like that and how and the living conditions and day to day and the stress and burnout yeah. and the eating you know and it, all these kinds of things that's you've gone from Australia to Afghanistan like yeah. how what was that like so I'll talk I'll, I'll mention the first rotation I did to Timor because mm-hmm. that was the first time I went on operations and it was 
I had no idea what to expect really. I asked all these guys about it, mm. but nothing really prepares you for when you get there. So we flew into East Timor and we went to a province that was there. And the first thing I remember seeing is this, it's basically, it was third world. There was not much development, mm. um, basic villages, in, like separated from Indonesia back in the 70s and now trying to, trying to get their own independence back. And I remember thinking these people don't have anything material like we have in the West. And I remember talking to a film and all they wanted was like peace, order, security, basic economic stability. It was the same thing that you ask any person around the world. Mm. They want the same thing. They want the kids to go off to school and not be harmed and mm. they don't want to live in fear. Like these are common to all humans. I remember thinking these people don't have anything, but they're in some ways more liberated from the stresses we put ourselves under in the mm. West. Um, but they had they faced a lot of tragedy. I think I think from the occupation of Indonesia, I think a quarter of a million people had been killed or unaccounted for in East Timor. Oh my god! So <clears throat> when I got there, one of the jobs we had to do was we lived on the border of. East Timor and West Timor. West, West Timor was recognised as Indonesian um, territory. And there was a whole bunch of refugees that had fled East Timor to go to live in West Timor. And they had been there for 18 months and they had to come back. And by the time I was there in 2001, um, it, 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 we transitioned into 2002 and it was Easter. And they were a Catholic country. They all wanted to come home. Mm-hmm. So they'd been in these camps for a year and a half. Our job down the border was to help them get back across into East Timor. We had to search them and help them. And I had my whole team there. And over the Easter weekend, we processed thousands of people, like thousands. And they were coming back as families, holding their kids. I was with the UN where they're helping us do it as well. Mm. And we were providing security for it. But these people were desperate. They were absolutely in, in disarray. Think about living in a camp for 18 months with not much mm. help or sanitation. Mm. So it was the most confronting thing I'd say. And they were bringing back uh, kids that had died. They had them in coffins. They had babies that had died. They, they oh brought God. them all back to East Timor and we yeah. had to search the families and everything. It was really – I was only 22 or 23 at the time. <clears throat> so it was the first time I'd seen, I guess, human suffering on that scale and that was – it was confronting. And I probably don't I, – I didn't think about this much until years later. I think until I had to talk about that particular – incident on the border it, it's it's uh, that was upsetting yeah mm. oh my gosh I just and that's such a young age as well like the stuff that normal 23 year olds are dealing with of the culture shock yeah. of going to university yeah. or, or like having to do their own washing or yeah you and, know and even the guys before us they were having to help like stop a basically a massacre so for some of the young guys that were there in those early days it was it was a hard road and for not just for Aussie soldiers, but the whole peacekeeping force, the doctors were there, mm. um, these Timorese. So, yeah, it was, it was pretty um, – that was crazy. And I always think as well about the fact that not only is it such a big shock, but, you know, normally when you have a big traumatic shock in your life or a culture shock, you go home and you process it yeah. and you have a shower and you have a bath or you have a massage or something. Whereas mm. for you guys, it's like <clears throat> yeah. you're in it. You're not going home yep. anytime soon. We lived in a little hut with tin roof. We had – rations there was asbestos in the building oh it was God. like humid it was it was pretty basic living and how do you get your head through that like living for such a long time in those conditions mm. how, how do you kind of keep your head straight of like this is what i'm here for without waking up every morning being like i hate this yeah or I i'm struggling or for me it was if you've got a clear 
purpose for mm. being there, then taking those hardships is not such a big deal. Yeah. And for me, it was motivating them saying, you know, these people aren't getting home safe unless you do your job properly. Yeah. So it, there was a lot at stake. So all of a sudden, the discomforts don't matter yeah. when you've got something that's far more important than just, you know, your discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. And then what came next after that? The so Middle East. after that, I, I went back. We, we finished that tour. We went back to our infantry unit and I went, I thought, oh, you know, we're pretty lucky to get that. I don't think anything else is going to happen. Six <laughs> yeah. months later, it's gonna cruise the, the Solomon Islands started to oh, yes. destabilize. So we were sent, our, our most of our unit was sent back to the Solomon Islands to help the peacekeeping mission there. And we helped, there was a gun buyback and a few rebel forces oh, that, and we helped, um, we helped basically put police on different islands using our, our watercraft and... Um, and by now, I was a bit more experienced as a platoon leader, so yeah. I was enjoying it. But that was that was really cool. That was fun, and it was like a the second tour was one that wasn't meant to happen, but it did. And when I was there, there was a guy who was SAS, and mm -hmm. he was a liaison officer. And I cornered him and just said, "Tell me everything. <laughs> Get me yeah, in. Tell me everything." He goes, and I said, I remember talking to him, going, "Oh." I might play footy for another year because I was playing representative footy. I'll go, I'll play footy for another year and then I'll do selection. And he just goes, don't be an idiot. He goes, the, the planets are never going to align if you wait. Just he goes, go just it. do it now. Yep. So that's when you did it. And I was like, I better do it. I better do it. And, and also my mum had died the previous year yeah. from cancer. Oh, I'm sorry. Which was a long year. It was like an eight-month battle and oh, that rattled our family. And yeah. all of a sudden there was that, you're not going to be here forever. So it. that mixed with him saying, you know, go go do it. That was enough. Oh, my gosh. Mm. And so how do you qualify for the SAS? Is it training um, or is it like you have to you have to qualify or is it you have to be selected? Or So when I did it, you had to apply to, to do SAS selection. You generally have to do two years full-time in the military or be a reservist for two years. Yeah. Then you do – we had like a pre-selection phase where they do a psych assessment, fitness test <laughs> – and a few other things, just pass. to make sure you're not a total basket case <laughs> yeah. that, you know, that you slip through the cracks. But I remember that being my first contact with the SAS guys. And I remember thinking when I met them, these guys, are they, they were formidable because they were very quiet. But when they said something, they said it with conviction mm. and they were hyper intelligent and you could tell they were constantly assessing their environment. And I remember just thinking, oh, my God, I'm outmatched. These guys are good. <laughs> yeah. They're very intimidating because yeah. they don't they're, – they're imposing but confident and very polite. They never raise their voice. Yeah. Um, and, and that restraint is so scary. <laughs> it's so yeah. scary. But that's what I think about. I think that about you, knowing that you're an SAS commander. I'm like the – mental control and the stuff you've seen and the way your brain must operate i i kind of see everyone in the military as like yeah. this superhuman because you have these incredible abilities to compartmentalize and like the training that's so vigorous to get you to that stage yeah. and there's a lot of fear like even in yeah. training there was i was afraid even from when i went on to the selection course you're yeah. doing things you don't think you can do that you think are going to harm you yeah that you think you're going to be humiliated by because you're going to fail and then when you start the training you're doing you're stepping so far out of what you've normally done it's really that's really scary and you feel that fear same as anyone else but yeah you kind of 
work through it i guess that's the the difference you, you have to try you have to push through <laughs> you have to do it. Yeah. i mean it's so funny i was laughing to myself thinking about the normal questions that i ask about self-doubt and about getting out of your comfort zone i was like it's almost laughable to ask mark those questions because out of your comfort zone is like afghanistan it's oh, not like yeah. you know it's, oh i just tried a new skill today <laughs> it's like and sometimes you get gosh. that that feeling where you're like, oh, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to do this. And yeah. it might, I've had it a couple of times, like getting ready to jump out of a plane. or. <gasps> um, and later when I did some boxing, I remember like it was time to get into the ring. I'd be like, oh, shit, I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what we and, feel about like oh. public speaking or like something quite benign compared <laughs> yeah, to jumping no, out of a plane. Get it, but the response and the trick is, is like what's going on neurologically is exactly the same as what we experience when you your life is at risk yeah and it's the same thing neurologically that you get when you're under a lot of stress in the workplace yeah stress in the workplace for you but it's all relative right like i was trained for all this but yeah um we're not trained for sustained stress every day that's one yeah another story but yeah (laughs) okay so you did end up transitioning out of the military which is what i want to move to next but just quickly having actually made it into the sas Mm. without having been your goal for you know, the oh, whole, yeah. what did that feel like? And between that and then the decision to move on in your career, is there anything you want to mention about that phase in your life? Yeah, so so when I did the selection course, I remember going onto it and I had a couple of mates on there that were doing it with me and we were like, we have to, we have to get to the end. Like if you're, <laughs> <clears throat> it's very hard to get to the end, but if you're still standing at the end, you've got a good chance of yeah. getting in. Um, so we kind of made this pact. We're like, we have to finish it. We have to, um, no matter what. And there was one period where I remember I was so badly injured in the middle of it. I didn't think I was going to finish because I had a badly strained knee. Yeah. I had, um, severe blistering on my other leg and I was walking really slowly and you had to cover, you know, 25 Ks a day. I was, I I remember one day I covered like 12 and so, (laughs) but I had to make that up. So I got medical help. And you're getting no feedback of any type. No one talks to you. You're cut off and isolated. And I had to make that distance. And I just finished. That nearly cost me my entire, you know, that nearly cost me the selection course. But I got through it because I just hung in a little bit and then I got some help just when I needed it from a medic. And then that was enough to get me over that hump. And then I had a third left of the selection course, which is, it's kind of like a teamwork phase where they don't give you much food, they don't get you don't get much sleep, but you're expected to do all these really difficult tasks in small mm. teams um, around the clock. You might get one or two hours rest a night. Jeez. So mentally, you really it's very hard to come up with creative problem solving when you're so tired mm. and to lead teams. But that mm. simulates combat. So they're watching. I was going to say they're watching you. Yeah. Like you've got five or six people taking notes on you all day, every day. <laughs> And, and at the end of the day, they compile the notes and they, they have this complete picture of every candidate Jeez. and they'll sit there and make decisions about who they want to let in and mm. in not immediately, but they are life and death decisions because if you let the wrong people in, yeah, the implications are huge. Our country's security. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so they're really diligent and they've been doing it for a long time and they're very good at it. I remember thinking if I don't get in, like it'll be a totally fair call because i've had so wow. many people watching me for three weeks that yeah you can't argue with that right oh my god but um i remember finishing it i was i'd lost 14 kilos in three <gasps> weeks. Jesus. yeah which was probably i think it was 
at percentage weight, about fifteen percent of my body weight, roughly. Um, it's like my parasite story. <laughs> it's <laughs> exactly. like the same thing. <laughs> great way to lose a few pounds. Great, great way to get in shape. <laughs> Shredding for the wedding. <laughs> um, and <clears throat> I remember going. Uh, we were all sitting in a room, all dishevelled in our PT gear, and they were taking us one by one into the commanding officers room to find out if we got in oh my god and the people leaving the room wouldn't come back they'd leave <gasps> so you didn't know who was getting in and i was because they were doing alphabetically my last name as well as i was the last person and i remember sitting in the room going like it had been 11 years since i first saw that book and i was like oh. the next five minutes define has been everything. 11 years worth of work and i don't know what's going to happen and i remember the the guy opened the door and he's like he looked at me he goes were you just talking to yourself I'm like, no. He was making a joke. And I'm like, yeah. I remember thinking, would he make a joke with someone they're about to kick out? Yeah, like, maybe not. And then I went into the commanding officer's um, office and he just goes, he goes, you know, you've got a checkered past. Um, you did well in some parts. You did terrible in others. You know, we're going to take a chance. We're going to take a chance on you. But you better not let us down. And I was Don't like, fuck up. I remember hearing it. I'm like, I, I couldn't quite believe it. And they shook my hand and... It was really, it was a really good moment. It was a really good moment. And I remember walking out of the office later and I literally didn't listen to one thing they said. After yeah, that. you were just like, oh. Like, we need to improve this and that. And I'm just going, yes, yes, whatever you say. You're that monkey yeah. with the symbols going, yeah. ah. <laughs> And um, I walked back and joined my mates. And I think most people had gotten in there, a couple of guys that hadn't, but we all stood there going, this is it. We've done and, it. And then we started training a couple of months later. Wow. And then you do 18 months of training and then you, you're into your unit. That was it. That was the start of it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was a big journey. It was, it, was, it was big. And then so how long were you in the SAS before you decided to move out of the military? Um, I did six years. After that? After that yes. moment? Yeah. Because okay. And normally it's short. You normally do four. But I did really? some additional training and additional yeah. work. And then I stayed there longer. And I got... I mean, I went to Afghanistan four times oh, in gosh. the SAS. So I got a lot of time doing what I'd always wanted to do, which was go and lead troops yep. in combat. And that's the reason I went. So I was like so lucky to get that at a young age. It's funny that in the military, it's to get a tour in the Middle East is lucky. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's funny that that's sort of the goals for. that you're setting. That's what you're you know? trying for. And what was what would you say like to condense it a little bit a little bit because I could talk about this for hours? What would be the highlight moment for you? Not not necessarily as in the most pleasurable, but just the moment that stands out to you, and then the lowest light moment. Mm, probably the one of the best things I did was I got sent to Lebanon for an operation in two thousand and eight, and I was there was so much uncertainty because Hezbollah, which is a rebel, mm. basically a a splinter, um, it's a known terrorist organization, had taken over half of Beirut. Yeah. And they were competing against the government. They were, they were basically at, at loggerheads over how they operate because they're basically a non state entity. Yeah. Hezbollah, a well known insurgency force that opposes Israel. And I was sent there to help organize the evacuation of Australians because they had no idea what was going to happen. Oh my God. And we have a lot of Australian citizens there. So I basically got sent there. I got called on Friday night. They're like, come to work. I was going to say, how do they yeah. call you out? Like, like, how do you get given goes, missions? Come to work now. And I'm like, sweet. I ran into work and they're like, we need you to be in Lebanon in 24 hours. <laughs> sure. We don't quite know what's, what to do. 
but we just need you there. Um, this is what might unfold and we just need someone on the ground. And I was like, sweet. I'm there. We got flown to Lebanon. We, had to, we landed in Syria. We had to drive all the way through the, across the Syrian border into Lebanon. There was basically a small war happening at the time. Yeah, it's like the we, Civil War. Yeah, and then we got there and I had to, we had to, it was based on an intelligence mission and we had to collect all this information and help just get a better picture about what was there and how we're going to get people out. And that was, a, that was exciting. I did it mostly with a, with a combined force, but mostly yeah. on my own with one other guy. It was cool. It was a really cool mission. Um, That's insane. Yeah, it was called OpRamp 2. That was the, the oh name. Oh, my God. That do you fun. choose all those weird code nah, names? Nah, I wish you could. <laughs> I've always wondered. Yeah, how do they decide? Yeah, I've had kung fu and all yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. Two-minute noodle. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was fun. And, but Jeez, that was kind wow. of after I'd done a bunch of combat tours. But a low, I mean, a low moment for me, it was one I, I was hoping I'd never come up against because I knew mm. I would take it badly. But in my first ever tour in Afghanistan in 2007, we had it, so I had, I was a troop commander, so I was in charge of th- roughly a team of 30, mm. and we split ourselves into about four teams of six, roughly. Each of those teams is led by a senior guy, really experienced, okay. really, really good guy. Um, I had a really senior team, uh, so my offsider and all my team leaders were really good. And one of them was a really experienced sergeant and a great fighter. He'd been in that valley the year before, well-known, won a medal for gallantry in that area. Mm. We basically had to take over this valley that had been held by the Taliban for about a year after they cleared it the year prior. And we weren't sure what was going to happen. We weren't sure if the Taliban were going to stay because we had a clearance force that was going to help us do the clearance. We weren't sure. Um, But we had all the protection we needed. We had gunships. We Mm. had snipers up on the hill helping us. And so we knew if we got in trouble, we'd have some backup. But still, we weren't quite sure what was going to happen. But we started this mission, and I had never been in real shooting combat. It had never happened. But when we started the mission, we had a pretty good plan. We're like, we're going to bring the clearance force in in daytime. We're going to be behind enemy lines. We're going to start them on their clearance, and then we're going to go to an ambush site and put an ambush in because we think there's enemy commanders in that area. So we got the mission started. We, we'd been planning it for about two weeks. It was, we knew it was going to be a pretty big job. But when we went out on foot, helicopters came in the early morning. We started the clearance. There was no real, no real action had happened. Mm. But we knew there were Taliban there, except we'd been watching them for about two weeks. Oh, my gosh. And then at one point, we had to do... You try and do all your movement at night time as mm. much as you can because... It's basically you've got a lot more protection. People can't night, see you. Yeah. You've got night vision. Um, Did you wear night vision? We had night vision. It's it's That's one crazy. of the big advantages that we have. It's good mm. technology. So we wore night vision. And then we got behind our mission timings. And by the time the sun came up, we still had to get to that next site. Oh, and it was daylight. And it was basically like, I remember sitting down with the team leaders. I'm like, we've got a choice. We've got to go either back through all that all those people that are doing the clearance mm. or we go forward to where the enemy is and we put our ambush in, even though it's daylight. And everyone was like, it's kind of, the, they're not great options either. But we decided to go mm. forward and I was happy with that, but it was daylight and I wasn't as, I wasn't that experienced. I didn't know just how dangerous it was. So as we were moving towards this ambush site, I remember crossing a river 
and we saw this cornfield. I remember thinking that looks really odd because the rest of that valley had been freshly ploughed. It was all harvested and there were no crops except this cornfield. And I didn't know it at the time, but um, one, of my, one of my guys saw a woman walking away holding two kids quickly. Oh. And it's like that's a tiny little indicator. And someone else saw yeah. a man in black get up and walk away quickly from the cornfield. And we didn't know it, but there'd been a bunch of Taliban had dug bunkers through that field and they'd been waiting for us to get up close to, to that them. Point. Yeah, or they saw us when we were close to them. Yeah. So when they shot at us, we were up close on this cornfield. We only had a little ditch to hide in and we were kind of caught out. And in the battle, that lead patrol commander was shot through the chest. Matt, in the opening maybe 10 minutes, not even 10 minutes of that battle. So he was badly wounded. Mm-hmm. We had to fight to get him out of that Situation. valley. So he was unconscious. We had to call in helicopters to get him out. The whole time we've got enemy right near us and we're trying not to get you know more people shot. Yeah. And we, we flew him out of battle like 30 minutes later because yeah. it took that long to get him away. And um, he died when, we got, when oh, he was he was basically dead by the time we got back to base, and so the it's just a massive it was massive it was a massive shock to me mm-hmm. um, and to everyone else. And I always thought there was that risk, but it never happened to the SAS really since Vietnam to lose someone like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a terrible terrible low moment. It was like we started this thinking we could do all this without too many issues mm. and straight off straight off the bat someone really important to us who we really treasured has been killed mm. and then you think about it he had a wife and a young boy oh um, and he was a great mentor so he was like he coached me through all the training and build up we were doing he didn't have to mm. <clears throat> but he he wanted me to do well because he knew you know it was in the interest of the whole troop so he would like help me plan routes and he would give me advice on certain things he was really good at helping me he didn't have to do that yeah and so i i really appreciated that and it was a huge loss oh it took gosh. me i think we we eventually we got over it as a team and we still did well after but i didn't personally recover from it for years i can imagine yeah, it took years and years and years Oh my goodness. Mm. So I think in this episode in particular, it's kind of um, superficial to divide YTA with NATA, which is all the challenges <laughs> along the way. So maybe we can just absorb those two sections together because that's definitely yeah. something I imagine, you know, it's always in the back of your mind that you mm. might have to deal with that in combat, but to have it actually happen to you would just mm. be so <clears throat> jarring. And then that you still then have to focus immediately on uh, like the mission still yeah. and you can't just drop everything yeah. and kind of address it. Yep. It would be so difficult. And I was afraid like Fear, I can imagine, at that would be point, huge. yeah, and you, you have a job to do, but mm. there's still that. You're like you, you've seen something you hope would never happen, and there's mm. that sense of like, what if I get badly injured or wounded or killed, mm. or that happens again to other people? Like, what's it going to mean? Mm. And those things that are never present in your mind, all of a sudden, are present. Are all there? Yeah. And so how about, I mean, one of the biggest nays TA I can imagine that you had all the time was fear and this adrenaline all the time. As you got further in your career, did you learn how to allay that before a mission or did you go out every time like shit in your pants that, you know, stuff was going to happen? Do you kind of get numb to it or how how does that? No, I think for a long time that was a monkey on my back because Mm. I thought 
if I go in combat, the same thing is going to happen again. Yeah. And so a couple of years later, I remember going out on a mission with one of my close mates and I was the, I was meant to be second in charge of the squadron, but I went out with him as a, like a machine gunner. Mm. And, um, <laughs> as you do. I was like, I was a bit older <laughs> yep. and I was a bit more mature and I'd come to terms, I think with my own mortality. Mm. I thought, well, you could die doing this. Um, but a bending machine could fall on you also. So exactly. And I kind of like, I'd come to terms with it a bit more in a way that I hadn't when I was younger. younger. I felt like I, there was still more I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and I think coming to terms with that and also having the confidence that you're trained and you're going to do your best. Mm. And outside of that, you can't really control those other things. Mm. That psychology helped me get into the next few battles and actually survive and do okay and help my teammates. So that, um, that psychology only came with a bit of experience and a yeah. broken nose and, <laughs> you know, and some mistakes. Yeah. And it's, um, that's a severe mistake. The first one we, I made was a severe mistake, but you can only learn from it, right? Yeah. I mean, you're the, the best example of the fear of failure because failure yeah. for you had actual mortal consequences. And learning to live with that and to see your failures as, as mistakes that are learning grounds rather than just as failure as failure mm. is. If you can do it, I'm sure mm. the rest of us can give it yeah, a red I mean, hot crack. It took crack. a while to come around to it, but yeah. And so I'm going to cut myself off from the military questions now because I know I'll just go on for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> it absolutely blows my mind. I mean, I feel so incredibly privileged to be sitting in front of you now. We've been friends for a really long time and I still, every time I'm just like, wow, this is behind, <laughs> you know, this, this is a chapter that is chapters ago. There's been yeah. so much since then, which is yeah. amazing, but yep. even more to hear it now. The fact that you transitioned out of the military and into management consulting I don't even know how you sat in an office after that. I just don't understand. Badly is the answer. <laughs> yeah. So as your military career came to an end, did you bring it to an end? And then so the next chapter, guys, uh, Mark went on to do an MBA in the US and then become a management consultant at McKinsey & Co., which is one of the world's most coveted management consulting firms um, before then the next projects, that which we'll, we'll obviously talk about. But how did you make that transition? Was it... Firstly, something you decided, and secondly, how did you do that? How did you go from yeah. combat to an office? The the hard thing for me was, it was actually when I'd done the six years in the SAS, <clears throat> and I was back at Duncher and doing the training. I was like, oh, what? Yep. It was a choice about what the next ten years were going to look like, and mm. I said, you're either going to stay in the army. And do all these jobs in Canberra, which I love so much, as I said before. Your favourite place. <laughs> and none of them are going to be as rewarding to you as what you've just done or as consequential. And that's a – it's kind of a bold claim because it can be – you can go on to mm. do really big things in the military. But the other half of me was saying you always wanted to go to the US as a kid. I wanted to play American football there when I was a kid. There's something about <laughs> yeah. the US I love, their yeah. um, approach to life, and they have their own issues. But for the most part – they're a very optimistic can-do country mm -hmm. and they have the best business schools in the world. I remember thinking when I was young, I'm like, if I ever leave the military, I'm going to go into business and I want to do a great – I want to study at a great school and get a good start. And so I thought about Columbia University and MBA because yep. I love New York. Yep. And as I did my homework more and more, I realized, no, just apply for the top ones that you would want to go to and see if you can land one. So – I did my homework and I wanted to apply to 
Harvard, Stanford, and Wharton, mm-hmm. those three, which are the top, known as the top ones. Um, after a year of studying, trying to get my GMAT score up, which is a standardized test, yep. um, I kept failing. I got it wrong four times before I got the score I needed. And then I applied to Wharton. I flew over to Philadelphia to meet the, instru- the admission staff and mm-hmm. shake hands with the people there. And it was becoming a do or die thing because they were starting to cotton on in the military ranks that I was looking elsewhere. And that oh, can, that you can, were still in. I was still in. Okay, that yep. can badly affect your career options because you're not going to reward someone who's, who's going to try on and break out. out. Yeah. And then I got an acceptance letter from Wharton. Like they called me. I'd been waiting for I was a wreck in the week leading up to it. So I'm like, <laughs> this is it. I've got to break out of Canberra. This is this do or die. <laughs> I love this do or die oh, theme in your like, decision making. <laughs> I was more afraid of Canberra than going back into, <laughs> going back into <laughs> Afghanistan. Um that's a great ad for Canberra tourism. <laughs> <laughs> but um, oh, it's got great bike tracks. Yeah. Great mountain bike yeah. tracks. Yeah. Um, but oh, yeah, I got it uh, and I knew that was it. I was going to pack up my life in the military. I was going to fly to Philadelphia and do two years full-time MBA. Oh, and I was my goodness. to the bottom of the stack. Like leave your uniform behind. You're not, you're not God anymore. You're not the most respected fighters in your field yeah. that everyone listens to. You're going on the bottom of the stack and you're a, you're a rookie. You're, you're a no one in this field because there are people that have been in this business field for 15 years that know a lot more than you do. So I had to check my ego and start yeah. again. And it was a great lesson in humility, I think, because... And vulnerability and oh. letting yourself go from like this actually commanding people what to do in the yep. face of death to you don't know anything to here sit in a lecture theater and let me boss you around yep and <laughs> and within six months i was on academic probation <laughs> what did you do i, I was out <laughs> drinking too much going to parties because i was so excited i'd left the military playing rugby and it was just a, it was just my academics were shambles because <laughs> these kids were like hyper good achievers and they were very good at that and I was miles behind and I wasn't doing the work. Also, to be gentle on yourself, you know, you come from a context where studying, you know, you lose the habit. Of, firstly, studying's yeah. a habit. Oh, but I, I was calm. I'm like, I'm freaking SAS. I can pull this <laughs> off. Like, how hard can it be? It's just another mission. And then I found out <laughs> it actually is hard and you, I didn't give it the respect. Yeah. It was due and I realized, and it nearly, it, not nearly, like I, I clawed it back and um, did but, my homework and like, you know. But you I, had a moment there. But I had a moment. I'm like, oh shit, I nearly burned myself. Um, and the instructors that were there, there was one lady who was a, used to help the veterans a lot and she was a um, admissions head. She just goes, pull your head in, start studying. I was like, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not scared of like the Taliban, but this this woman will she's, knock you she's into a shape. Killer. Yeah, she's a, she's a New York finance killer. Yeah. She was like, oh, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Oh, so, so, yeah. Anyway, got it, got it back. And then when I was at business school, I was thinking like, I, I didn't know what to do after. Mm. But I'd had a close mate from the army called Dom Skerritt who'd gone into management consulting McKinsey. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was prestigious and, and hard to get into. And I was like, I, I knew if I could get into one of those companies out of school, I'd be able to figure out the Something. next step after yep. that. And it's a great kind of holding pattern to be in. So I worked towards it, did all the case studies and the assessments and realized they were like another, they were the business equivalent of a really fine-tuned special ops unit. They were very good at what they did. <laughs> Do you they kind of look at good. everything with a military lens now? A l- little bit. I've tried, I've tried to give it up, but yeah. But they were good at it. 
I don't think anyone's referred to McKinsey teams as a fine-tuned special unit <laughs> before. I think Elon Musk calls SpaceX a special ops unit. He's oh, probably not wrong. He's, probably, he's not wrong. Yeah. So I've actually done a bit of work with the Princess Trust in Australia, which is... Oh, cool. Yeah, I think I've introduced you to them before. You did, yeah. They do a lot of work with helping... Um, ADF veterans transition back into society yep. because you, it's so overwhelming. I mean, you've mm. learned to speak this language, you've learned this different culture and sets, sets of yeah. rules. You institutionalize. Yeah, yep. totally. But also just the fact that, that your level of adrenaline and your level of expectation of what yep. the day is going to look like is yep. so different. And it's, it's, you know, we've done quite a lot of work with veterans who are starting businesses because their skills that they need in the military are very well suited to business. It's mm. just they need a guiding hand to make the transition the because it's incredibly yeah. overwhelming. You literally feel like you've had all these skills and then you go mm. to having no life skills yep. of how to live like a normal person. And just that emotional change from living in high adrenaline to just living day to day and not seeing that as really boring and, yep. and tough to tough it out. What was your emotional and mental transition like into yeah. the world of business and a slower pace, even though I wouldn't call New York a slower pace, but compared to maybe combat? Yeah. <laughs> how it, did you deal with that? And did you have any PTSD? Uh, yeah, it was harder than I thought it was going to be. So, and yeah, I did have, so after my first tour, after that fatality with, with Matt Locke, I had came home with PTSD and depression mm. and I knew something was wrong. So I just couldn't concentrate, um, felt just numb. Um, wouldn't talk to family and friends, like isolated myself, yeah. all, all classic symptoms of, of someone who's been through trauma. And clawing that back took years of self-care, like mm. sport, eating well, sleeping well, all these little habits and routines I had to build into my sleep routine and so on to rest and recover and get better. It took took years of discipline to, to recover from it. Mm. And I kept going back to Afghanistan when I had it. So like it, in the midst, in the middle of it. So it was, and I'm not unique in that sense. Like this yeah. is common to a few people that were in the military. So it was quite difficult. But when you leave the military, you go from being in a team where you live, fight, train together. Mm. It's very ancient. Like we evolved as humans in that kind of um, format, I guess. Yeah. And you leave them behind and you go out on your own and you feel it's like leaving your family behind. It's very hard. You feel... You'd feel so lonely. You're just isolated. Like, yeah. But you also, you hand over your identity, which was a uniform and, and whatnot, and you also give away a purpose that you took for granted every day that you were training for something much bigger than you and yeah. and then you got to find something else. So that took me, again, a long time to rebuild and find a new purpose and... That's such a good example of what I talk about on a much, much smaller scale often that we define ourselves so much by what we do. Mm. And you're, you know, in the military, you literally define yeah. yourself in a uniform to the rest yeah. of the world of I am yep. this, this is what I'm doing. And anyone who comes out of the military and reinvents themselves is such an inspiration and a, and a real life example of the fact that you don't have to define yourself that way. Or if you do, you can redefine yourself at any yeah. time in your life yep. and make a new life. You can. It's hard, but it can be done if you if you put the work in. Yeah. So what did you do in that sense? Did you like, I imagine finding friendships again and building networks where you're not yeah. living together and kind of mm. putting your life in each other's hands. How did you deal with moving into the business world? Yeah. I think it's one part was the getting some of the excitement of the military back into my life. And it's, it's <laughs> yeah. an old, like it's such an overused cliche. It's like adrenaline junkies. Like I thought that was bullshit until you came back. I left the military. I was like, <laughs> Ooh, yeah. something missing. And, uh, and I 
found what was missing through sport. Yep. So I took up CrossFit. I'd been doing a bit in the military. I did a lot more. Mm. So that was one. Surfing. I used to do that with my mates. Mm. That was a group activity. A mm. um, bit of boxing. So a few things were just physical and would scare me and had a community around it. That helped yeah. bring a bit of that excitement back. Um, this is literally the perfect example of finding your yay, that it yeah. looked like you, one thing yeah. and then you literally have to piece it together. It doesn't fall together. You have to piece it together yeah. bit by bit. You, and you have to build something into your life that you're excited to do. So yes. knowing that you've got the events or the sports coming up or the surfing trip, like something you can look forward to that you know is going to be fun. Um, Sam and I train for this race in September. Perfect example. It's like super stressful, but it's exciting at the same time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's a good one for anyone. If you're in a rut, like join a club, join a sport you're scared of and go do it. <laughs> Play to yay, guys. Yep. Play to Oh, my. Yep. All the sections are mishmashed together good. in this one. Good. <laughs> We're mishmashing today. <laughs> so, then in 2016, uh, you've been at McKinsey from 2014, so two yep. years in, yep. you started your own business called yep. Kill Capture. Yep. Tough luxury. Yep. <laughs> it's funny because- Dish it up. <laughs> yeah, this is, a, this is a funny transition. People are like, what's he doing going into fashion? All my military mates. <laughs> fashion. I had this idea. <laughs> and when I, I was the last tour in Afghanistan, we had these new cool uniforms. And I remember saying to my mate, like, imagine how cool streetwear would be if you could mm. like- Militarize turn, it. Yeah, if you could turn this cool design to streetwear and- and he's like, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. But I, I, um, when I went to business school, I had the idea and I didn't have the know-how to kind of bring it to life. But I started an LLC, a limited liable mm-hmm. liability company in Delaware. I called it Kill Capture, which is the mission profile. And that name immediately carves out about 80% of your consumers, which is fine because what's left <laughs> yeah, it's are not like... accessible. Oh, no. And what's left, they're like... Um, they're, they're your target they're market. They're tight, but they're excited about it. Right? Yeah. So... Um, I created uh, basically a leather jacket based on all the design features we had because I kind of liked the Jason Bourne movies and that look, but I'd never been able to find that jacket. So I just went and built it in the garment district in New York with the help of some mates. Um, And I wore it in the fashion show at school. And I wasn't being... If you do that in the military, you'd be judged for that type of action. But now it's a clean slate. Start again, try something new. So I was able to do that. And then when I was in McKinsey, I kept just doing little steps towards building it. So I had this busy job, but on the side, I would just... You had your side hustle. Try and try and develop it, get a few people to wear it, and, and gradually more people wore it, and then more and more, and I was able to increase the price a bit and actually get some margin. Um, and then I got some publicity around it, and, and bit by bit, it just grew. And the whole purpose of it is to bridge people from the armed forces or athletes or first responders, bridge mm. them back into society. And Such if that's a great with, story. It's, it's like I believed in it. I, so I had a purpose. I didn't have that at McKinsey. I was like yeah. just kind of randomly helping companies. But now I had something I believed in. And so that was more exciting to me. And it was kind of a tribute to my past as well. So I was able to bring all those worlds together, business and mm. my past job and something exciting. So it's not just going to be clothing. There's going to be other things and then it's going to be like content that will help people. It could be a bit of rum. Could be a bit of a <laughs> could be a bit of a new... Um, a line emerging but I just wanted to make it men's and women's essentials that mm. is your new uniform and they're you very the technical like it's what is it 10 times the strength but half the weight of normal leather yeah so we got really good quality Australian leather that was um, really high leather. grade yep it's really I mean I can make a much thinner leather with that stuff so it's mm. really compact 
You got tracking beacons. I put a tracking. No, no company does that. And I only did it because I lost a jacket on a flight. And, and it was, was so like annoying. a thousand dollar jacket. It was like a really expensive jacket. And I thought, <laughs> you know, I'm just going to put these beacons in there so at least you can find it. I mean, you can track your iPhone, but you can't track an expensive jacket. So. Oh my gosh. Um, Which is it, worth more than the iPhone. Exactly. It's worth <laughs> way more. It's custom. So um, I bet you never imagined yourself in fashion. No, I didn't. So but when I was went back to New York, um, kind of put myself back into McKinsey, New York, because it worked for a lot of different reasons. One being that I was close to the garment district. Mm. It was just good fun working at it, creating something, getting it to people and them being excited about it as well. Mm. And even now, people are still like, oh my God, I'm going to wear this jacket forever. I'm going to wear it to my wedding. And <laughs> people just, people are excited about it. I, yeah. I get excited. Um, so It's the story as well yep. and, and the, the th- overall theme that it's kind of yeah. like your armor as you're going back into a new yeah. challenge. Yeah, and it's, that's what it is. It's armor for the new, the next chapter of your life, really. Oh, so, yeah. so amazing. Yeah. So then... And I love this because it is piecing together all the bits of your past and your skills and what excites you, which is exactly what Seizing the A is all about. But I love that it's taken, I mean, this whole hour to cover the first part of the story. That's only the first part. It takes that long to kind of figure out what you love. And you're not ever going to be able to sidestep that. You have to go through the motions. You have to be in jobs you don't like. You have to be in jobs that are blah that you don't mind but don't light you up. You have to have all that I think people think you can sidestep all that. Totally. It's, It's not realistic. And they agonize when they're in that space of, I'm not passionate about what I'm doing. I'm like, that's great. You're you learning know. what you're not yeah. passionate about. This is amazing. It's not, it's not a no result or a waste. Yeah, it's, actually, it's a step. Yep, it's a step if you use it well. So then you obviously, we are in Calorama in Victoria. You yep. ended up coming back to Australia, yep. meeting my beautiful bridesmaid <laughs> and dearest friend, Samantha, having the most amazing little bubba, Harry. Oh, he's a little menace. Whose uh, middle name, Locke, is, is a tribute um, yep. to the fallen soldier who we mentioned. It is. it is. And that is, again, a whole other chapter of coming yep. back home. So when did you decide to come home from New York? Yeah. And at that time, did you have any idea what your pathway was or did you hit another kind of crossroads of what the fuck am I doing? What's um, next? <laughs> yeah, I think when I was in New York, I knew I wanted to break out of the world I was in, which was McKinsey in the corporate world. But yeah. I didn't quite know how. Then I saw the Survivor Australia ad and I'm like, oh, my God, I'll definitely do that. <laughs> oh, and that's I'll, right. Yeah. You were still living in New York. I was still York. living there. Yep. <gasps> so I applied from New York. I had, had to fly back to Australia for the audition. I had to explain <sighs> to my boss, no one takes time off in New York. I had to go, Oh no. I need a week. I'm going to be flying home. For something. <laughs> for reality television. And then I remember, and then I'm coming, the guy's like, what are you doing taking a week? Like, what, what's wrong with you? Um, I, f- I remember getting on the plane. And I'm like, what am I doing? I'm flying all the way home for a bloody show. I don't even know if this is going to work. Um, <laughs> but I flew home, got the show, uh, spent a few months preparing, like just getting my life in order to go in do row, it. Yeah. yeah. Um, flew onto the show, uh, got stuck. No idea what was going to happen. This is a completely new experience. Never been involved in TV ever. <laughs> Literally, um, your military mates will be like, first fashion, now reality TV. What is Mark doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like, what on earth is this guy? Up That's to? a commander um, right there. <laughs> so, and then, before we'd even could speak to people on the show, I'd met Sam. I was sitting next to her on the <gasps> boat. On the way there. On the first time we got on the set on the ship we got put on the ship we've been waiting for a week and locked up in a hotel room 
Sam and I are sitting right next to each other. I'm like, she's pretty short, isn't she? She's a, she's a, good, but she's a, she's a good looker. She's she a little a, pocket oh, rocket. She's a little. She and I thought she's very attractive. And then um, <laughs> she's a little bit of something nice. <laughs> Samantha's in the room, by the way, guys. Crate, she was sitting on a crate of eggplants <laughs> with a giant hat. Um, I remember when we went shopping and she got the. I remember the giant hat. You sent me a photo and I was like, yeah. wow, you're taking that, babe. Yeah. Cool. She was, she was sun smart. <laughs> she was so sun smart. Um, <laughs> so sun smart. <laughs> Always sensible. <laughs> and then we started the show and <laughs> we were like, it, it was absolute mate. 12 people on a beach, all with competing agendas, everyone backstabbing, scheming. Like it was. And a, big personalities. It was. <laughs> These are not small people, like they're slightly neurotic. Most of them are crazy. And then you got me and Sam, and I'm crazy in my own special way. That's so crazy she. too. Yeah. But, um, That's why we all get along. Yeah. But we recognize we were, you know, um, the same cut, kind of crazy. Cut from the same cloth. And so we became close as we tried to navigate this bloody treacherous space. Um, but it was a really fun show, and we, we became really close on the show. When I left, I had to go back to New York at some point. That's right. To like I remember shut my that. life down, yeah. and I remember saying to Sam, "We'd met after the show. I'm like, come back to New York with me." And uh, I remember that too. So I went back to New York, <laughs> and then we did a road trip in California. And during the road trip, we made a little baby. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I found that out, I'm like, "Well, looks like I'm going home." Harry, and, and Harry then, was the reason for and it all. There he is, little ten kilo one. <laughs> really I like how you guys ease into things. Yeah, I really exactly. like how you think about yeah. it, you plan it out, you know. Yeah. And ta da, little bubba. And I think I, I didn't have the courage to step outside of my profession to do my own work. Mm. And Sam showed me how she had done it, and yeah. I was impressed by the courage she'd shown. And I didn't think I could do it, but when I started doing my own work around train corporations as well as working on kill capture on the side, I realized there was something to add. There was some value there. Mm. And as I got trained up and better at doing it, um, I was able to make a living out of it. So Sam showed me how to do that and it's created a whole (laughs) new life. There's a whole new bunch of opportunities we can take that you couldn't otherwise take. Like this race in September, like, you know, I did a bit of work with ABC and... Random things are just exciting and fun. So it was on a kids' TV. show. It was on a kids' TV yeah. show. Oh my god! This I was, is I was the like best. a drill sergeant that like helped the family. <gasps> that is the <laughs> it was, best. It was, they, were, they were a lovely family and oh my god, working babies. It was so random, but it was fun. And like random things like you guys with Harry are ambassadors for ambulance Victoria. Like there's so many different yeah, things just, that <clears throat> they're just things that you can look at and go, that looks like a really good thing to do. As you as you know, you can you've got choice. But isn't the most amazing thing that the next best chapter of your life could be around a corner that you don't even know is going to happen? You don't even know. Like at the end, before Survivor, you you were like, I'm sure, had no idea that there were more chapters that looked like this. No, no idea. And I think if you just keep taking some measured risks. Mm, With an open mind. Yeah, and not, it's okay to pause for a while, but always think of something else you want to do that you're excited by Mm. and just go do it, yeah. And then have a little baby that looks like Harry. And then have a little, little kid that looks like him and eats everything he can get his hands on. So tell me about fatherhood. Oh, what has that been like? It's, other than it's a surprise. Actually, it's, been such a, it's been so good. It's, it's funny because it has its frustrations. Like, mm. like anything worth doing, it can be at times hard and stressful. But it doesn't matter because you know you're doing it because there's this 
person that you're everything to them mm. from when they get up in the morning to when you put them in bed at night they're only there for you yeah and they like when you get them in the morning they're the most excited you've ever seen so you got this <laughs> little guy that has no Bubble filter hair. and just <laughs> he's never embarrassed he they, it's just humans without any of the filter put on them. so he's, he's such a classic and um it's been an amazing turn and i'm lucky to have such an amazing fiance fiance that makes it so much easier we are getting married within a couple of months of each other, which is very exciting. I just want Harry to like. I wish we could wait until he was, you know, ready to be a little page boy. It'd be amazing. He's ready. He's ready. He's ready. <laughs> he won't do what he's told, but he'll. he'll yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, guys! Harry is the most amazing baby. He's out of the box. Such a smiley, happy kid. I love him so much. He's just he dances. He sings. Yeah. Yep. He's so happy. He does bite me. Biting issue. I'm okay with the biting. That's all right. Auntie Doesn't Sarah is okay right. with the biting. That's okay. <laughs> Harry could do anything. He'd get away with it. <laughs> so I guess, you know, now what's next? Like you guys, I mean, obviously we will do some this episode that will follow. You do a lot of adventure racing, a lot yep. of outdoors activities. Yep. You've got another big project coming yep. up in September. Tell us about that and then what, what the rest of the year yeah. is kind of looking like. So we're racing in Fiji in September. It's a 12-day race. Um, it's an adventure race. For me, I haven't trained this hard since I did selection. But it's I was like, going to say, oh are you God, like, I'm now, back in the military? Now I'm 15 years old. It's like dad's army. But <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it's been really hard. But it's exciting to train again and do something that involves teams and the wild and competing against nature and not having to worry about getting shot along the way so that's, that's <laughs> it's like all the good, good bits yeah. without the shit bits so that particular adventure is taking up most of our kind of bandwidth at the moment along with um family life i do want to write i've always wanted to write about you need to everything write about that happened yeah yes. and i want to write about it because and not just for my own gratification but also because i can that can help people like the, the things that trip me up yeah if you can educate people about them too there's a lot of a lot of benefit there so and you might be the guy who had you know you and your nine there might be a year nine exactly. out there who reads your there book could be and someone it, else it and changes so their journey. whenever i hear about a kid that wants to join i always make sure i write to him and go oh. call me because i've done it a couple of times i'm like That's lovely it's hard to get a hold of guys from the unit um, mm. and girls so call me anytime yeah oh that's so and sweet you might have the same journey and yeah. <laughs> yeah. and so i mean i know you guys are two of the busiest humans around with all the different things you have going on but just briefly to touch on the whole play ta thing i think we all as we mentioned you know really define ourselves by what we do and what our output is it's very hard for personalities like us to not be productive and to still think we're worthy or to still think that the day was spent you know well yeah so what do you do as you know, you mentioned sport and stuff when you were in the military, but now what do you do for your joy? Do you do anything? Yeah. And having a young child around, I think, makes it a lot easier to pass time and forget what time it is because yeah. his needs are so immediate. But what do you do for your joy? I think the probably the favorite thing that we do as a family is we get up, we put Harry in bed with us, and he's like I'm super excited. So he like spends so half cute. an hour excited and we give him some milk, and he runs around in bed, and we just hang out with him and, and have fun and tickle him. <laughs> And um, then we then we pack him up and go get a coffee. So we go get a coffee from one of the local places, and the that's piggery? our ritual. It's like the simplest thing. We just yeah, it's a little thing. Get up, right? have a shower together, get the boy ready, and um, go get a coffee. And that's how we start our days. 
Yeah. And it's such a good way to start the day is just to spend time with people you love. Yeah. So mm. beautiful. Yeah. Well, second last question just to finish yes. up. Three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation. Ooh. And one of them has to be what's the most down-to-earth thing about you because I forgot to ask you at the beginning, oh. which I've not done in 45 episodes Oh really? Because I was so excited to get into the military <laughs> stuff. I was just like, go, tell me all the things. <laughs> so one thing, oh, so I make a really good New York cheesecake. It's like my <laughs> it's like my dessert weapon of choice. Um, but like, it'll like weapon of choice, see? It Everything. will harden your arteries, that stuff. It's like it's good, but you don't want to make it too. Love often. that shit. But it's great. What is um, your actual weapon of choice? Most people food? don't have this at no, no weapon. Oh, weapon, weapon of choice. Oh, great. Good question. So mine was um <laughs> I had an M4 rifle, right? Which is a, I'm going to get some jargon going. I know. I was like, I love how I asked the question as if I'm going to know what he's talking about when he answers. It's basically an assault rifle. So it's a car line. I'm Googling it. 5.56 millimeter rifle. It's got a bit like a 30 round magazine you put on it. It's like standard rifle for a lot of troops. Mm -hmm. But I had mounted on mine a grenade launcher. And like, (laughs) for some reason, I always wanted a grenade launcher. I'd fired him in the military and... They fire like a small grenade. It's like the size of a two golf balls and it goes maybe three, 400 meters. Oh my but gosh. I, I would, I put this thing on my rifle and people go, you shouldn't have that. You're a true commander. You shouldn't be in the, involved in the battle like that too much. Funnily enough, I used that thing from the moment I got in combat to when I finished later on. And I would encourage the other guys. I'm like, hey, you might not think you're going to use it, but this is fancy. It's good to have it. It's good to have it. You never know. So I'd carry Jesus. I'd carry 10 high explosive rounds, two smoke, two red smoke grenades. So you can mark targets with it or you can fire grenades at the general direction of people to to get them to move. Anyway, that was my <laughs> that's the one I liked. I, I, that um, and a New York cheesecake. That's that a great and a combo. New York cheesecake. Um, <laughs> what's the third thing? Any weird like party tricks? Oh yeah, I'm I'm a Are you a I'm gamer? A nerd. I'm a nerd. <gasps> You're a gamer. I as a kid Even I didn't know this. I watched I watched Star Trek, I watched Star Wars, I played computer games. I had every game console from the Atari up to the like the oh Xbox. My God. Then I stopped playing once I went to Afghanistan. I was gonna say once you but had the sometimes actual even weapon. now I still play sometimes. So I'm like I'm like a nerd. I That's read your science fiction yeah. books, yeah. That's yeah. the best. I yeah. love that. I had to turn myself from a nerd into a soldier. But I never... Like, You're still a nerdy a soldier. Nerd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And since I love motivational quotes so much, the last question is, what's your favourite quote? This is a good one. So many, so many good ones. My favourite one's probably... Uh, I'll give you two. One was a Churchill one. He's overquoted, but if, if you find yourself going through hell, keep going. I love that one. Yeah. He's overquoted for a reason. He's overquoted. It's it's a little bit of a... Cl- a little bit cliche. No, no, no. It's good. And the other one would be... There's a couple of Murphy's Laws from combat that I still use today because they're, they're true. And I'll give you a couple of them. Slow is smooth. Smooth is quick. I've it's seen true. that on so many TV shows. Slow is smooth. Smooth is quick. Yeah. One is none. Two one is, is none. one. I'm confused. One is none. Two is one. So oh, yes. okay. one thing Better is always going to fail, yeah. right? So if you've got two options, mm-hmm. that means you've got one. So we carry two weapons. Okay. Yeah. one's always going to fail. So you have right. rifle, pistol, something like that. Because yeah. you know if you go to shoot your rifle, it's going to stop. At least you got your pistol. Mm-hmm. So one is none, two is always have a backup. Yeah, the Probably. relatable version of that is like phone charger, car charger or something. Have, have a backup, have a backup. Yeah. Like, 
<laughs> for me, it's for, for me now. My layout is laptop, iPad, iPod. Okay. Oh, sorry, iPhone. Yeah. So you got this three layers of. <laughs> if you need to work somewhere, you can work. Like, cause one's gonna fail. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's some great. other good ones? Speed is fine. Accuracy is final. Ooh. Yes. So it's good to be quick, but you've got to land. You've got to hit your target. You Otherwise, because a close miss is still a miss. Oh, wow. So the point is like, don't rush everything. Yeah. Like hit the target, get it right. Get it right first time. Because if you miss, <laughs> doesn't matter. Sam, does Mark like militarize your lives? Like when you're in the shower or cleaning or something, is he like slow is smooth, but smooth is quick? Like, like, <laughs> and you're just like, don't even. You've got a small insight into my <laughs> I have I've let it go but sometimes some things you can't let go because you know they work it's true oh that's so good so there's well, a couple there's a couple for you there that was absolutely brilliant thank you so much for sharing yeah, and no so worries. openly I'm like literally this is so fascinating I think people will get a lot out of it and yeah, you're so. an incredibly interesting human and Thanks. have pivoted so so well so congratulations on everything Thanks. and I'm same as every other person out there kid from leaming white night and if you work hard you can like it's true i'm trying to dress it up as something else but if anyone like if if um anyone has any questions i'm on linkedin i'm on uh you know social media so yeah perfect i'll put all your links in find me and ask anything you want oh that's opening the floodgates you're gonna be like sarah lose my number stop asking about the military But yeah, I'll include all that in the show notes so people can get onto you because I think there'll be a lot of interesting ears, interested ears out there. Awesome. Okay, so he's basically a superhuman and as you'll hear from Sam, they're the perfect match for each other. The race Mark mentioned that they're both off to shortly has just been announced, the Eco Challenge Fiji, which is the world's toughest race across hundreds of miles, racing non-stop for 24 hours a day. They'll be outrigger paddling, mountain biking, rappelling, climbing, whitewater rafting, pack rafting and paddleboarding, and they can navigate only with a map and a compass. You can follow at mark.a.wales and at kill underscore capture, both with Ks. And please tag and share if you're listening. Mark would be so stoked to know you enjoyed it, and we always love to see who's listening along. And stay tuned, of course, for Sammy's episode next week. We've also had a few awesome CCA field trips in the past week, just by the by, with new episodes coming from both Seoul in Korea and Adelaide Zoo. If you've been following the running journey, our Seoul trip bears some very exciting news for the non-runner or the reluctant runner, so head to Spoonful of Sarah to watch the first IGTV travel diary. Hope you're having an amazing day and are seizing your yay.